open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, as you're uh, turning, uh, there's no need to adjust your computer or video screens. There may be a need for some of you uh, here in the sanctuary uh, to break out your sunglasses. Uh, I have uh, three spring shirts in my ensemble that I try to break out in rotation, uh, beginning with the fuchsia shirt I wore a few weeks ago. Since I know what a jabbo and a swag and all of these things are, I can know what fuchsia is as well. And so I rotate them through this one, and I will end up in my uh, beautiful purple shirt. And I can always kind of imagine, just kind of like pulling a string. I know what people are going to say about the batteries and this or that and the others. But uh, uh, in fact, I could tell when I pulled in this morning, uh, a couple of our deacons were, you know, you know and, and I heard something about the shirt, and I, I went, you know, that meant I'm pulling the string. I know what you're saying. But actually, one of our young men, Jacob Duncan, had an original and insightful statement. So we saw you driving in, and, and we thought there was a headless driver in your car. All we could see was the shirt uh, in, in the shadows. So I thought, that's pretty good, Jake. I, I, I commend you. Again, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, just a moment, we'll begin uh, in verse 13. We're going to read through the end of the chapter as we conclude uh, our celebration of Easter in, in some sense. But, but be reminded that each Sunday that we gather, we are celebrating the certainty of the reality of Easter. We serve and we celebrate uh, the resurrected Lord. And so this morning we're going to look at Luke's account, uh, selected events, uh, after Jesus' resurrection, uh, until uh, his ascension. And as you look at the text, there are kind of four places that we can uh, break the text apart into segments. Uh, there's uh, part of it that takes place on the road to Emmaus. There's a part of it that takes place at the dinner table in Emmaus. Uh, part of it will take room uh, in the upper room in Jerusalem and part of it in Bethany. And I've given you four key words in your outline, that of the word encounter, exchange, uh, encouragement, and exit. And so uh, just hold on to those words and think with me as we look at God's Word uh, as Luke defines and describes for us the activities of our Lord uh, after the resurrection. Beginning in verse 13, that very day, Two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know uh, the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, A man who, who, <coughs> who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how 
our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not, him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them all, in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us? When he talked to us on the road, when he opened to us the Scriptures... And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit, and he said to them, why are you troubled, and why do, do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of boiled, broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law and prophets and the prophets, uh, law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer. And on the third day, rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You're witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Pray with me. Father, once again, we come to your word, and as has been prayed for so many centuries, we indeed would see Jesus. Uh, God, I pray that you would illuminate our hearts and minds, that we would see him as the high and lofty one, that we would lift him up 
And Lord, that we would understand him and that your spirit would apply the great truth of your word to our hearts and minds, that we may please you, but in the very same way that we would even be bless our souls by knowing you and obeying you. Again, give us the ears to hear, the minds to understand, and the hearts to obey. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask for a, a moment of, I guess, pastoral privilege. I, I'm going to take a, a bit of a side road, if you will allow that. There is a point to it, and we will reconnect to the main road of uh, this text uh, in just a moment. But one of the ways that I think of myself, that I describe myself, is that I am a teacher. Uh, certainly, uh, by taking uh, the office, office of elder or uh, uh, overseer, bishop, all of those terms we've talked about, uh, one of the terms that Paul uses is that of shepherd teacher, pastor teacher. In Ephesians 4.11, the, the Greek term is pormenus didaskalos, pastor teacher. One of the primary ways, not the only way, but one of the primary ways that I shepherd your soul is by my teaching the Word of God to you, that, that, that I uh, prepare you uh, to understand what has happened in the past, to, to help you to understand what is happening in the present, and help you to live with anticipation uh, for the future. So I, again, I, I seek to shepherd you utilizing the Word of God. And so the task is to take the Word of God, the, the Bible itself, and, and to teach it, to, to speak it in such a way that, that indeed you hear it and that your mind uh, comprehends it and your mind works and uh, assimilates and, and sorts out and organizes information and that you work it through your mind and the Holy Spirit takes and applies it to your heart. By, by heart, I mean uh, your, your will and your affections that, that you be totally transformed and totally conformed to the very character of Christ. But again, my, my limitations are primarily in the realm of communicating to you the truth. So much of it is that which God must do with that which he has given us, mainly and namely his word. Now, if, if you've noticed, and I've already alluded uh, to the, the outline that you've got in, uh, in your hands, and I have alliterated the four points on that outline. I did it intentionally. There's most weeks I'm, I'm, I don't typically alliterate. Alliteration is simply a mnemonic device uh, which you utilize the, the same sound or same letter of a key word in phrases that help uh, to dissect uh, the passage at hand. And so, again, I use the word encounter, exchange, encouragement, and exit. Uh, in fact, that's uh, part of a mini mental exam. If you do not know what that is, I'll tell you later. But I will ask you to recall those as you exit uh, the building uh, here in uh, just uh, a bit. But sometimes I think those kind of little creative ways of uh, breaking down a text and communicating sometimes are uh, a bit trite. Uh, a bit. That sometimes you force those things upon the text, and I think they sometimes do more uh, harm uh, than than good. But again, preachers for centuries have used that technique. Uh, I'm reminded, and some of you are aware of uh, 
these little things that come on social media, I think, reformed humor. And they're clips from sermons and seminars and, you know, lectures and all of this. And I'm thinking, God, you'd have to go through 20, 25 years of material to find two minutes of humor among a bunch of Calvinists. I mean, if you're a Presbyterian, you agree uh, to be sad for the rest of your life. And if you're a Reformed Baptist, you agree to be mad for the rest of your life. I mean, you know, you're, you're mad at something. You're mad about something. I mean, you're, you're not mad all the time, but you're mad if you're with somebody, and you're mad if you're by yourself. Right? But in this interview... A man by the name of Phil Johnson, many of you know that name, he's an accomplished scholar. He is interviewing John MacArthur. And uh, usually in these things, uh, you know, the Q&A, well, how do you prepare your sermon? And the, the great well-known preachers will tell you. Uh, MacArthur's almost, I ain't got a clue. I just kind of, you know, this, that, and the other. But some of them have some real technical insight as to how to prepare uh, a sermon. And so... Uh, uh, he's talking to, Phil Johnson is talking to uh, Dr. MacArthur, and he says, well, how long do you take to come up with your subtitles? And MacArthur says, well, five or ten minutes, something like that. They come to me pretty quickly. And Johnson, Phil Johnson kind of, oh, hmm, well, let me, let me ask you about this. Uh, when you preach from Matthew 27, now Matthew 27 is roughly parallel to what we looked at on Easter, the account of the crucifixion of our Lord in which there's darkness upon the face of the earth, uh, the temple curtain is torn, and Luke doesn't tell us, but there's actually an earthquake in, in the midst of all of this. And so MacArthur's uh, sub-points for his sermon, they're, they're double alliterated, okay? So he was really kind of, you know, feeling artsy that day. And so they are... Sanctuary desecration, the tearing of the temple curtain. Supernatural darkness, the darkness on the face of the earth. And soil disturbance. And Phil looks at him and like, I think you need to spend more than five or ten minutes on these things. Soil disturbance, really? That's the best you could come up with? And so uh, anyway, he went on to say, how about something like, seismic destruction or seismic disruption or seismic devastation, but soil disturbance? That's all you got. And you can actually go to MacArthur's Matthew commentary, and there it is in black and white. Soil disturbance. But like MacArthur, one of the, one of the first things I do when I come to a text, and we've been doing big text for the last two or three years, so I'm taking Big amounts of material and trying to do small sermons. I'm better at taking small amounts of material and preaching big sermons. But a lot of material trying to bring it down to an understandable level. And the first thing I do is try to break the text apart into manageable, memorable uh, types of sections, okay? Uh, and it, they, they occur naturally. As I mentioned a moment ago, uh, there's this bit of uh, this encounter and so forth on the road, and, and there's this exchange that takes place at the dinner table, and then there's this encouragement that takes place uh, there in the upper room, and there's the exit of Jesus there at Bethany. So it, it naturally does, it's not forced, it naturally uh, breaks down. But again, that's uh, according uh, to learning theory. As many of you know, uh, I was at one time a teacher in high school, believe it or not, and I, I enjoyed it and uh, just basically left for financial 
purposes. And one of the things that I learned while working on my master's degree in education at Jacksonville State University, and I went down to my basement and found my textbook from the spring semester of 1982, The Essentials of Learning. And as I learned stuff in this course I used in business. I use it as a pastor. But how do people learn? Now, people learn when they know a little bit beforehand, preparing for worship. They get a little idea about what's going to go on, and they got a little bit in their head already, and then when you tell them something else, it sticks. It sticks to the stuff already there. That's why I do that. That's why I ask those questions of you. And we learn by repetition. I remember Ms. Neal, one of my favorite teachers, fourth grade. We wrote our multiplication tables every day for eternity. Did our ones, and then the next week we did our ones and our twos. And the next weeks we did our ones, twos, and threes. All the way one through 12. And then when we did our one through 12s, when you uh, got, were able to write them all in perfection, all those multiplication tables, then you didn't have to take the test anymore, and you got to leave the class and go to the library. Guess who was first in the class to attain perfection? Now, just to show you it works, I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you spontaneously and quickly to answer the question for me for me. What's 11 times 11? I heard some 121s. That's very good. That's very good. I mean, that was always a hard one for me. 11 times 11 is kind of, kind of a off the mark. But I learned those things by repetition. That's why I repeat a lot of things, okay? But a big thing is organization and giving you some pegs, some mental pegs to stick the information that I'm going to give you to stick it own that information, to organize it. So again, this week, if you want to meditate on the sermon, and I think that, uh, that you should, then you can meditate according to those four words that start with E, okay? Does that, does that make sense? So those are easy to remember. Now again, you would be interested to know that in the course of this class under Dr. Ralph Parnell, I found this very faded Evaluation sheet. You can, this was done on what we call a mimeograph machine. Say it with me. Mimeograph machine. Uh, they, they, they're fossilized now. They, they do not exist. But you'll be interested to know this was an oral presentation on April 1st, 1982. How many of you were born after 1982? Raise your hand. Yeah, well, a lot of you. Okay, well, I was taking classes at Jacksonville State University. Now, in this presentation, there were, I think, about five, six categories, and you got, it was a 15-point presentation, and you got so many points for each aspect. So, uh, total amount of points that you could get for presentation and explanation of important ideas, four out of four, home run. Suggestion as to how teachers can use their information, four out of four. Adherence to time limit, zero. Use of ingenuity and creativity, zero. I'll leave it alone after that, but you get the idea. I haven't changed a whole lot in 40-plus years. But all of those things are very important. I am teaching. I'm, I'm conveying information for the good of your soul, But it begins with me organizing, thinking about the information, thinking of the way to communicate that information to you 
without encountering and what, without allowing in you to rise, arise in you what's called inhibition. Inhibition is an educational term. It's basically frustration. When you're trying to teach your child something and he looks up at you and says, I can't, he's probably telling you the truth in that he has become so frustrated with how to field a ground ball or how to paint a shutter or how to crank a lawnmower or you name it, that he literally can't. He's become, his brain is just firing and going, bouncing here and there, and he really, really can't do it. And so I try not to frustrate you to create the, I can't learn that type of thinking in your mind. Just to give you a bit of an example of how inhibition, frustration can stymie the process Many years ago, in the great, when there was real music being created, the 1970s, uh, there were a great number of musicians and bands that gathered in Southern California. And there was uh, one young man that became quite well-known that lived in the basement of an apartment building, and other soon-to-be-famous musicians lived upstairs. And those that lived upstairs could hear the other musician banging out songs. And the young man downstairs was writing a song, and it was a very catchy tune. And you may recognize, I have a preacher version of that tune that you may recognize. I was running down the road trying to loosen my load. I got seven members on my mind, four that want to own me, two that want to stone me, one says they're a friend of mine. Well, anyway, you recognize, I think, the song. So eventually, the young man downstairs, Jackson Brown, says, I can't finish it. And the, the young man upstairs, Glenn Fry, goes, that's a great song. I want it. I want it. And, he said, and Jackson Brown says, I can't finish it. I, I just, I, the words just won't come to me. The music won't come. I just can't do it. And Glenn Fry wrote down, sat down, and wrote, I was standing on the corner in Winslow, Arizona. Such a fine sight to see. It's a girl, my Lord, in a flatbed Ford, slowing down to take a look at me. Jackson Brown knew all those words, knew all the notes, but he got so frustrated, he couldn't do it. So when we teach, we have to teach in a way that people understand. Another quick example. When I go by to play with the grandkids, Papa swing us, and so I go out and begin to push the big swing. They're in there. So one day, who knows why? I've never even seen the entirety of the movie Mary Poppins, I don't think. Certainly don't remember seeing it. But I begin to sing to them, let's go fly a kite up to the highest height. Let's go fly a kite and send it soaring. Right? No thought. Now, boys, I want you to remember this. I want you to sing this with me next time within two or three days. Popo, don't sing. We're going to sing it. And never missed a word. No intentionality of teaching. And that's why it's true so many times. What is it? There's more caught than taught. 
because it bypasses our natural reluctance to being taught, to learning. Why do you think Jesus told parables? It was to get by the natural defense mechanisms, the natural inhibitions. And before the listener knew it, they had learned the truth. I wasn't trying to teach my grandsons a song, but they sure know one now. And so, that's why we do things like, that's why you see on your outline, there's one, two, three, four, usually three, four, or five points. I have broken the text down into smaller chunks so that you may uh, remember them, so that you may utilize them, so you can, you won't be frustrated by, my, I, can't under, I can't understand 40 verses. But you can understand what it is to encounter Jesus on the road. You can understand how it is for him to engage them and all of these different things that I mentioned there. And so, let's begin this morning with a very long passage. And I'm going to use another technique. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. Then I'm going to tell you. Now I'm going to tell you what I told you. So, let's talk about the encounter on the road in terms of the two discouraged disciples, their dialogue with Jesus, and then Jesus describes his purpose. So, all the way back in 13, all of that being said, these two discouraged disciples, they do not know what to make of a crucified Jesus. The tomb in which he was buried is now empty. They are going to their, presumably their home in Emmaus, one of the places we don't have a clue where Emmaus is. It's seven miles from Jerusalem, but we do not know where Emmaus uh, was. But they are going, and they are dismayed, they're distressed, they're disillusioned, they're depressed, and they are doubting. They are in a mess. And as they are going along, uh, probably with maybe some other people returning uh, from the Passover, uh, they are talking to each other, they're discussing the things uh, that happen. And in the midst of all that, they have a dialogue with Jesus. And so we're told in verse 15 that Jesus drew near, but they were kept from recognizing him. It's an interesting phenomenon. A lot of different explanations for that. My explanation is I've thought about it and I've gone back and forth over different explanations. You don't get it till God gives it to you. That's a very simple principle. You do not get it. We talk about in, in uh, Bible study, God illuminates our mind. I can't tell you how many times I preached a sermon, and I have worked on it all week, and I'll walk up there in that foyer, and somebody will walk up and say, have you ever thought about it? And I go, I sure haven't. I have never thought of that before in terms of that text. That is amazing. That is great. Because God illuminated their minds in the course of their study. And so we're reminded that we are indeed dependent upon uh, God to reveal, to, to illuminate our minds so we can understand his revelation of us. And so Jesus begins to question them. Now, does Jesus question them because he doesn't know? He questions them to draw out of them, to force them to organize what they are thinking, the things they have learned, and to put them in some order so that Jesus can begin to address them and they can take what they've organized and take what Jesus is going to tell them and put them together to have a fuller understanding of what has just happened there in the city of Jerusalem. And so they tell him what's going on. And in verse 18, uh, Jesus, as Jesus questions them, notice there, Cleopas. He, he probably would maybe have fit in a bit here at North Clay. 
because he seems like he's a little bit sarcastic. Look there, verse 18. Can you, now, let's get the tone right. Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? Duh! Right? Now, you know, I've said things to y'all over the years with that tone of voice and that attitude. Have I not? Amen? And sometimes I really feel bad. Can you imagine how Cliff has felt a little bit later in the day when he realized he'd been sarcastic, he'd been a smart aleck to the resurrected Lord and Savior? Oh, well. Thankfully, God is gracious, is he not? And so, again, Jesus continues to question. He draws out of uh, them their answer, and they begin to uh, talk about uh, Jesus beginning in uh, verse 19. Some, some call this the, the gospel according to Cleopas, which is no gospel at all in that it is an incomplete uh, gospel. So they speak uh, to Jesus about this man, Jesus of Nazareth, whom they thought of as a, a great prophet, mighty in deed and word, probably even thinking of him as the promised prophet of Deuteronomy uh, eighteen fifteen, and yet he's dead. It's interesting that in verse 20, they say our chief priest delivered him to crucifixion. It made me wonder, you know, obviously the gospel, the Holy Spirit, the truth of the resurrection is basically the, the, the fundamental issue that, that, that God used to build the church. But for them to say that, it makes me think, well, these guys already weren't real happy with what was going on within the, among the religious leaders there in uh, Jerusalem. And so our hope was we used to have hope, but that hope has been dashed. We are now dismayed, distressed, disillusioned, depressed, and we're doubting. We, we don't know what, what's going on, but our, but our hope was that he was the one that was going to liberate us from Rome, that he was indeed the redeemer of Israel. But it's been three days now, and we don't know what to think. But yet, verses 22 and 23, some of our women have said they received a message from the angels that he's alive. And then get this, but we decided to go home. There, evidently, before Peter can come back and say, Jesus appeared to me, they head home. And so, again, all they've got is some ladies came, and uh, we're, not, we're not sure about that. And so Jesus really describes his purpose uh, by, once again, appealing uh, to the world. We get word of God. He says to them, verse 25, O foolish ones, and slow to heart, or slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Again, repeatedly Jesus said, it is they that point to me. I am the fulfillment of what they promised. And so the Old Testament anticipates our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what, what does he do? Well, he takes some time there in verse 27, and he begins with Moses and goes to the prophets, and he interpreted those Old Testament passages, which they believed, in terms of the realities of the personal work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to give you a big fancy sentence, and then I'm going to kind of explain it to you. Jesus is the hermeneutical key to the Bible. 
He must be the exegetical goal, and he must be the homiletical subject of our preaching. Now, what do I mean when I say I was just trying to be fancy, okay? Exegesis is determining the meaning of a text. Now, I've told you, what matters is what God meant by what he said. What doesn't matter is what you think, okay? All right? What matters is what God says, okay? So we go into the text to determine what God meant by what he said. And again, we interpret it. We use a hermeneutic. We, we take and look at the text to try to understand its meaning, okay? And uh, the meaning is closely associated with the person and work of Christ. He is the point of the Bible. Genesis to Revelation is the testimony to the lordship, to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Spurgeon used to talk, talk about taking every text in the Bible and making a beeline to the cross. And that's a pretty good hermeneutical message. In view of what Christ has done, what does this text in the Old Testament mean? And so homiletics is simply the practice of organizing a sermon and preaching a sermon. And so we organize and preach a sermon what? To reveal the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus took those Old Testament scriptures that they believed and that they were familiar with, and he expounded the reality of who he was and what he had done. And so there we see the encounter on the road with the discouraged disciples, their dialogue with Jesus, and then Jesus describes his purpose. Let's move forward to verse 28, the exchange at the table. We're going to look at the reality of their invitation, their illumination, and I wish I, I made a mistake here. I should have said their information, but I messed up, okay? Because you can use the end, endings of words to make them kind of fit together. But their invitation, their illumination, and their informed uh, return. And so Jesus agrees to stay with them for a bit there in Emmaus. And they urged him to stay with him and with them and to have a meal with them. And so he goes in, and we're told that when he was at the table, he begins to take the bread, and he blessed it, and then he broke it. Now, some think this, and it's possible. He takes the bread... He blesses, he breaks, and he begins to distribute. What do you think they would have seen as he handed out the bread? That's possible, okay, that they saw the scars in his hands that were handling the bread. Possible, and, pro and probably part of it. But again, the reason that they understood is their eyes, verse 31, their eyes were open. God gave them illumination. Now, remember, this side of the cross, we have the Spirit. We've been born again. The Spirit indwells us, but we're constantly dependent upon Him. And there's a relationship between our endeavor, our diligence related to the Word of God, our study, and God giving understanding of God illuminating us. And it's interesting, I was asked last week, well, how many of these have you done, speaking of Easter sermons? And I said, well, I guess 20. And he said, would you just you know, pull one out of the file and you know, you just you know, kind of take the week off? And I said, I've never just pulled one out of the file. I, I, I don't have a file like that. And I said, it, it really wasn't work for me. If I haven't lived in the text, if I have not marinated in that text all week long, starting and working it and, 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 and breaking it apart and sprinkling it over my life and, and, and just basking in that word and, and thinking about it and, and, and planning how can I explain these things to you, then 
I can't get up here. I, I, I mean, I just, it just won't work. And so, again, I'm dependent upon God illuminating my mind, helping me to understand, and you're dependent upon God working in your heart and mind for him to illuminate so that you understand what the Word says. And so upon being illuminated, they make this informed uh, return uh, back to Jerusalem. So they've walked seven miles, and then guess what they do? They're so excited they're going to walk seven miles back, okay? Hour, hour and a half little walk back to Jerusalem, presumably in the dark. So on the way, they start talking to each other. And there's a, a rhetorical question, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Scriptures? Why, why did, he, he did that with us once. He used the Word of God. And again, God's timing in terms of illumination is always perfect. He withheld from them uh, probably for dramatic impact upon uh, their uh, lives. And so they, they go back, they, they find the 11, uh, presumably maybe in the upper room, and the 11 uh, give what, uh, what they have encountered. That's verse 34, the Lord has risen indeed. He's even appeared to Simon. You missed that because you went home. You go home too early, you miss a blessing, don't you? Always remember that. Good principle. So they go back. And they describe their encounter. So, the exchange at the table, the invitation, the illumination, and the information. Third thing, the encouragement of these disciples. Jesus enters, he explains, he eats, he exegetes, and he exhorts. Okay? So, as they were talking about these things, wow. The Emmaus disciples have returned. They're so excited. They've walked seven miles. They, could, they can't help but talk about what they've heard, that they've actually seen Jesus. They've heard him explain himself in terms of the Word of God. And they, they go in, and they're talking to the disciples. And, and it, I have to say, this is a bit strange. Jesus appears and says that, that they were startled and frightened. And that's, in, in Greek, those are two really big, they, they really were. They were scared. They, they were scared that Jesus was among them. Now, maybe because I don't think, I, th I think I'm probably right. He didn't go. And they didn't go, who's there? Jesus. Oh, Jesus, we've been waiting on you. Come in. My guess is they're sitting there talking and jabbering and carrying on. And then they look and there's Jesus. What? And immediately... Their mind goes into the realm of unbelief. Don't we do that? When something shocks us or angers us or scares us, don't we immediately get into the realm of unbelief? I mean, isn't that a short trip for all of us? Nod your head. Yes. I mean, we quickly. I mean, they've just been talking about Jesus has appeared. He's alive. He, the tomb is empty. We saw him earlier. Simon saw him, and then he shows up. Ah! scared to death. Kind of the way we are, is, is it not? And so, his first words, peace to you. And quizzing them, again, not because he doesn't know, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? What a great question. You know, probably... That would be a, a good verse to write on your door. 
on the inside of your door, maybe on the outside of your door, but the inside of your house. And each day as you leave to go about your business, go to your job, go to the things that you do, maybe ask and answer this question. Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your hearts? Jesus is alive. He has been raised from the dead. He has ascended to the Father. He is interceding. And listen, folks, get this. He is ruling and He is reigning. And in that rule and in that reign, He is working all things for your good according to His set purpose and foreknowledge because He's working all things according to the counsel of His own will. That's the gospel. Preach that to yourself so that you will not be troubled and have doubts. Ask yourself that great question. So Jesus explains. And again, he says, look here at verse 39. See my hands and feet, that it is myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. An invitation to examination. Okay? Here's the thing. God, the Word of God, realities of the gospel, they can stand up to any honest examination. Okay? You know, I've, I've said this so many times. Now, please understand, I can be wrong about something. Okay, that's not in question. But the Bible is never wrong about anything. Okay? And it can stand up to your questions. You can ask the questions of the Word of God if you're honest. But if you come to the Word of God and say, I'm going to prove this is wrong, then your only hope is just the sheer mercy of God that He would break down your rebellion and your obstinance and possibly allow you to actually see uh, the truth. But the Bible and God Himself can always stand up to the questions. We might say the honest seeker. Okay, And so he shows them his scars, and I, I suppose as a, a further demonstration of his, the reality of his resurrection, of the, maybe the continuity uh, with himself prior to, to, to death, and of course the discontinuity uh, as well, uh, post-resurrection, different from prior to resurrection, he requests some food, and he actually eats. Again, I, I don't think Casper the ghost eats anything, to my knowledge. Okay, spirits don't eat, but a resurrected Savior enjoys the meal. And so he eats, and, and, and maybe, maybe part of it, this may be a, little, a bit of a foreshadowing, particularly in the ancient world, but it's really true of us. Those we're in fellowship with, those we're friends with, we enjoy table fellowship with, do we not? That's the basic way of fellowshipping. And so what's he saying? Welcome back, guys. Welcome back. I'm here with you. Peace be to you. And so he eats. And he begins there, verse 44, he begins to exegete the Scriptures themselves. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then 45, what happens? He opens their minds. Once again, a powerful demonstration of the working of, of the Spirit. He opens their minds to understand exactly what he's talking about. No matter how gifted a communicator I am, no matter how uh, well I organize a sermon, I am dependent upon God himself to so work in you, 
to give you the understanding and the appreciation and the application of this word. So, what did he say? Well, we don't know, but let me just take a little run and stab. Beginning with the law of Moses. Remember, he said, I didn't come to abolish it, law, but fulfill it. He came to obey its demands perfectly and suffer the penalty of the law, thus fulfilling it. But also, he fulfilled passages such as Genesis 3.15. He is the serpent crushing seed of the woman. He is the ultimate and final Passover lamb of Exodus. He is the mercy seed on the day of atonement from Leviticus. He is the serpent lifted up in the wilderness in uh, the book of Numbers. He is the prophet like under Moses in Deuteronomy. In the prophets, as Jesus explained, I am the one the prophets look forward to. I am Isaiah's suffering servant. I am the virgin born Emmanuel. I'm the mighty God, the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace. I, in Jeremiah, I am David's righteous branch. In Ezekiel, I am the Son of God and the faithful shepherd. In Daniel, I am the anointed one who is cut off. And I am the Son of Man who inherits, inherits an eternal kingdom. In the Psalms, I am the Son who shall rule with a rod of iron. I am the Holy One who shall not see corruption. I am the pierced and forsaken one. I am the good shepherd. I am the very wisdom of God. I'm David's Lord who sits at his right hand and will not be abandoned to corruption. I am the rejected stone who is the cornerstone. And on and on it goes. I don't know how long that sermon lasted, but I would imagine they gave full attention to everything that Jesus said of himself. And their minds were open so that, again, they could understand. And so on the basis of what Jesus says to them, there is this exhortation to the proclamation, which is exactly what we see in the book of Acts. The faithfulness to this exhortation to proclaim, beginning in Jerusalem and going beyond, that there should be repentance and forgiveness of sins proclaimed in his name. I've, I've alluded to this several times. One of our morning devotions deals with this. Repentance is a lost concept in the modern church. But believe me, there is no salvation where there is no repentance. And repentance is both initial and it's continuing, okay? And you don't have to ask yourself, well, when did I repent? No. Your repentance is the proof that you repented. Okay, that's the easy way to figure that one out. But to proclaim under the authority, with the full authority of the risen Christ, that men must repent and that they may repent so that there can be forgiveness and your witnesses. Your witnesses. You, I have revealed myself to you. I've illuminated your minds to understand. You're going to fully understand what was accomplished by my death, my burial, and my resurrection. And so we see from the very presence of the Lord and from the Word of God itself, Jesus does what? He offers encouragement to these discouraged disciples. He enters, he explains, he eats, he exegetes, and he exhorts them. Finally, we see there at Beth Bethany, Jesus exit from the earth. He leads, he lifts, and he leaves. Okay? I told you. Then I told you, now I'm telling you, okay? So he takes them out to Bethany, and he blesses them. What a great thing. Now, again, evidently a good bit of time passes between the end of verse 49 and the beginning of verse 50, but we have Luke's version of the ascension, and remember in his sequel, 
the book of Acts, he'll give us some more information about this ascension. And so Jesus blesses them after leading them out. He lifts his hands to pronounce this blessing upon them. They worship him, and he leaves them. And so what have we done today? Well, we've talked about Luke's testimony of Jesus' life from his resurrection to his ascension in terms of four words, the encounter, the exchange, the encouragement, and the exit. Now, so what? Big de- Okay, Tim, that was cute. That was fun. Why not this this week? I'd like to think a little more about this. And that was how many verses? Uh, 40-something verses? It's a lot. I would like for you to remember my sermon this week. I want you to meditate on it. But what if you take one of those words? Can you remember one word each day? Can you remember one word each day? Can you take a note card? I want to, talk, I want to think today about the encounter that Jesus had on the road. And you begin to meditate on the Word of God. And again, under the category of Jesus' encounter with them on the road. Then Tuesday, the exchange at the table. And so on it goes. There is an opportunity to use the Word of God. You know, Joshua wrote this and said this, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate upon it day and night so that your way will be prosperous and you will be met with good success. Let me say it another way. We've seen this many times in our baby dedications. From Deuteronomy 6, we call this the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Well, how do you get them on your heart? And then you're if they're on your heart, you're to teach them diligently to your children and talk about that. You shall talk about them when you sit in your house or sit in your car or sit in the yard. Or You get the gist? So Moses goes on to write it, to talk about binding them as a sign and then write them on the doorpost. Well, I've already said, why do you doubt? Why are you troubled? Maybe you write that on your wall. But you could also take a note card as you transport your children here, yon, and everywhere. Again, let's talk about Jesus and that encounter on the road to Emmaus. Let's talk today about that that exchange uh, that Jesus had with those Emmaus disciples there at the dinner table. Let's talk about how he encouraged those disciples with the Word of God and the reality of his resurrection there in the upper room. Let's talk about the realities of his exit. And even especially, what does that exit mean for us? You know, so many times as I preach, you know, I, I really don't give you here the six principles to master this and the eight, eight ideas to, you know, I just don't do that. What I'm trying to do is tell you the truth of how the resurrected Christ gives you hope in, in every circumstance. And so the fact that Jesus was raised and he has ascended are truths 
that transform our lives that we can think about. That sin has been atoned for. God's wrath has been satisfied. It's been propitiated. Guilt has been removed. Death has been defeated. All prophecy has been fulfilled. Christ has been vindicated. God's power has been demonstrated. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He lives to intercede. He rules and reigns. He will return. The Spirit has been sent. The believer has been regenerated, gifted, illuminated, comforted, and united to Christ. If that's not enough application for you, call me this week. 305-3612. Okay, I'll give you some more application. But that's the application of the great truth of a crucified and a resurrected Lord that gives meaning to everything we do. It informs our attitude about each and everything. And we can live with this great truth. Paul, in talking about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, explains essentially, if Christ be not raised, we are of all men most miserable. We are to be pitied. But what's the good news? Christ has been raised. Be encouraged. And do not have doubts. And do not be troubled. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. Your word is true. It is the accurate and faithful testimony to the realities of your son, Jesus Christ. And we're thankful for the accomplishment of the cross. We're thankful for his victory over death. We're thankful that indeed he lives to intercede. And indeed, even now in what is so many days and so many occasions looks like absolute chaos in our world. He is ruling and reigning. He is sovereign over all things, over everything. And so, Lord, I pray that we would rest in these realities and that we would pray, even so, come, Lord Jesus, indeed, that our hearts, that our hearts would not be troubled. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.